welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from Somerset CCG, and I'm today, well, supported by my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and uh, Somerset Mental Health Lead. And it's really great to have back with us as a guest, I think for the fourth time, Dr. Lorna Stewart. Lorna, welcome. Thank you very much, Andrew. Really good to be with you and uh, really good to be with you too, Peter. And you're consulting clinical psychologist at Somerset Foundation Trust, is that right? I am. That's right. Yes, that's right. Lovely. And our topic today is making complex decisions, something that as a psychologist you know a lot about. So tell us a little bit about making complex decisions. Well, this is something that I've been pondering about for some time, really, about how we might support people with making complex decisions. Because what I've really noticed is over the last 20 months or so, you know, around the pandemic, the COVID pandemic really presented us with some decision points, which under sort of pre-pandemic circumstances, we'd never have had to have thought about before. Things like you know, should we go out? Should we see family and friends? And we've also had to make, um, as clinicians, a lot of clinicians have had to make some really novel clinical decisions, things that they would normally not be presented with. And that these decisions have been um, really complex. They've been very emotional, ethical and difficult to make. And are there types of decisions, Lorna? Are there different types of decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are there are different types of decisions. Um, and uh, what we know is that um, there are decisions that fall into sort of three broad categories, really. Um, the first is something that's called a dichotomous choice or a, di- a dichotomous decision. And um, on the face of it, they appear really simple, although we're not we know they're not very simple. And they require a kind of a yes or no answer. And there are things like, you know, whether to go out or not, which has a yes or no answer to it, whether to see family and friends or not, and that has a yes or no answer to it. And then the second uh, type of decision is around specific choices. And those are um, questions that generally start with the the, the WH questions, the kind of where to go out, who to see in your family, when to see people, why at a specific time or place. And they're all the work questions And then um, the final one is around multiple choices. So quite often we have to make decisions which involve quite a lot of decisions all at once or choices between a number of different things. So, yes, you are quite right. There are a number of uh, types of decisions that that we make. Thank you. So that's types of decisions. Are all decisions easy to make or are some, some hard to? No, (laughs) I think lots of decisions are very difficult to make. And I think that we've been faced with decisions that are complex, emotional, ethical, and have been very difficult to make over the last last few things. You know, some of them are very time consuming and they're emotive and and making those things can be very, very stressful. Um, But there are a number of very specific factors that, that make it hard to make a decision um and can influence our ability to make decisions um so the first is around time um and sometimes we make decisions very quickly a snap decision and actually as we know quite often it's better to leave things to stew a little bit and to give things a bit a bit of time so that we don't uh, get influenced by biases or or snap decisions that we might make and then um 
we have things around uh, unconscious cognitive biases. So we're all influenced by all sorts of subtle things out in our environment. Um, And subconsciously, we can pull on memories or other things that we paid attention to that make us influence us, um, perhaps in a biased way when we're making decisions. Um, The final thing is is around um, information. And we can get bombarded with the amount of information. And I think certainly over this COVID period, we've been exposed to an awful lot of information. There's a lot of information on the news, on the media, on social media. So there's an awful lot of information. And that can uh, really help uh, make us feel like there's so many choices that we could make. It's a bit like going into a sweet shop and you've got all this array of, of choices to make. Really tricky. Thank you. You mentioned both social media and subconscious bias. And I read, I, I, I watched the film A Social Dilemma recently, and I didn't realise quite how much we can actually be in our own echo chamber of social media. Is that a problem when it comes to decision making that we are actually surrounded by confirmation bias that we don't realise is confirmation bias? Absolutely. I love your description, Andrew, of the echo chamber in that we often subconsciously seek out information that confirms our point of view um, and we discount information that might not be uh, the same point of view that we hold. So we can get into this kind of echo chamber. And I think, um, shockingly, I think a lot of um, social media uh, algorithms are designed to perhaps perpetuate that echo chamber too, which um, makes decision-making hard. And certainly it's been especially thrown into focus in the last uh, year or so. There are so many difficult decisions to make, aren't they? Can, can, it, can people have too many decisions? Is that, a, is that a thing? It certainly is, yeah. There was a researcher called Toffler who in uh, 1970 Um, So some time ago, recognised that actually exposure to too much information uh, is a real thing. And actually, we often talk uh, glibly about the expression information overload, but it is a thing. It can really affect your ability to make decisions. Is that Alvin Toffler? I I read his book, uh, Future Shock, if it's the same person. Indeed. Absolutely. Yes, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he talked very much, didn't he, about how we now have so many choices that we just get overloaded and, and can't actually come, come to any decisions. So, and that was, as you say, that was 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely. And, you know, the analogy of, uh, you know, decisions being a bit like an open sweet shop. Um, I often talk about that. And we have um, uh, choice overload as well. So it's not just information overload. We have choice overload there's so much to choose from um and there there are different ways of that's described it can be over choice um it can be choice paralysis or the paradox of choice it's called different things but basically it's that kind of over choice too much out there for you to be able to to reasonably weed your way through and and make a good decision around they say that practice makes perfect. So, um, you know, if we do something more and more, we get better at it. Is that something that happens if we make more and more decisions, we get better at making good decisions? Ah, uh, well, not necessarily. 
So it can be that we can uh, get smarter at making decisions, but easily, equally, if we have too many decisions to be making, um, we can get something called decision fatigue. So the quanti- sheer quantity of decisions that we have to make in a day. So if you have to make 100 decisions in a day, you can be very fatigued by that, very cognitively fatigued, very tiring, uh, having to make perpetual amounts of decisions. So can you give us some checklists and some ways through this this minefield of decision making? Uh, Are there any simple tips you can give us that might help us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I I often call it a bit of a six-point plan in terms of... um, how you can uh, move towards um, decision-making techniques. Um, And the first one is is about knowing yourself. So are you the sort of person who makes a snap decision or somebody who needs to ponder? And is it a good thing if you're making a snap decision? Are you actually somebody who should ponder more um, and to think more about this decision that you're making? Um, And... Uh, or are you somebody who ponders too much and actually maybe it's not not a very good thing for you to ponder too much? Maybe you need to reduce some of those choices. So the, the kind of second point in the, in the six-point plan really is to think about your information. Have you got too much or too little information to make a decision? And are there too many choices? Can you filter things down? And then... The third thing really is around um, making a good decision-making environment. Sometimes we we put ourselves, we we force ourselves to make decisions when we aren't in the best place to do it. So is now the right time to be making a decision? Have you got too many decisions to make at the moment, too many choices? Are you hungry, angry, late, lonely, tired? Is there too much stimulation in your environment? And what we know is when situations are highly stimulating, it's much harder to focus and and to make a decision. And then the the fourth thing is around um, exploring your options. So sometimes um, you do just literally need to make a pros and cons list or a list of uh, alternatives or potential outcomes in order to help you um, to select the best solution. And then the fifth one is slightly more complicated um, in that quite often when we're making complex decisions, it it feels an impossible yes or no, um, because the decisions that we're making don't necessarily have a right answer or cause us some sort of internal conflict or some sort of internal dilemma. And so when we're we're faced with that, we, we often try and say to hold those two competing ideas in your mind at once. And there might not necessarily be a, uh, a decision point to be made. It, it might be that you need to be, that it's okay to be uncertain and to hold those two, two things in, in life at once because life is complicated. And then the final six-point plan uh, element is, is if you possible to talk it through with an unconditional and neutral listener. It really helps to, a problem shared is a problem halved. Thank you. That's really helpful. Going back to those two ideas in mind at once, that's that's when we have a dilemma. And sometimes they say that problems can be solved, but dilemmas can't be solved. Dilemmas have to be managed and we have to make the best of a, a difficult situation and move forward, sometimes courageously, sometimes cautiously, but recognising that there is no black and white answer. I, I don't know how that strikes you, Lorna. Absolutely. And 
Um, I think uh, what we've really noticed in this uh, period of time is that there have been a number of difficult decisions that we've had to make. Um, and people have had different views on all sorts of different things in this last 20 months or so. Um, and I think just being compassionate with other people as they're trying to work their way through difficult decisions or complex decisions um, can be really helpful and to just not necessarily take a very, very firm stance, but to be able to hold those two things in mind can be really helpful emotionally. Thank you. And I loved what you said as point number six, talk things through with an unconditional and neutral listener. So often when we're conversing with somebody, uh, we, we interrupt each other or we say the next thing to each other or we problem solve the other person. Whereas I think we've observed from Rogers' unconditional positive regard, from listening, from the power of attention, that when we're attended to, we can often actually, um, we can actually problem solve our own issues. Uh, that's not a dog chewing the corner of the rug, by the way, if anybody can hear any interference there. Uh, it's, it's a tiny baby crying. Um, so we can actually almost find our route through our own issues by having that unconditional supportive attention uh, of of somebody else and in fact in somerset we've been we've been training people in thinking pit stops which is a, a very interesting intervention that aims to help people and um, support them in that absolutely it could never be more important at the moment where people are working their way through really complex decisions to have somebody truly listen and and to attend and and, and just hear when people are trying to work their way through because we know that um one of the reasons why some of these decisions are so complicated is that um, you know no man or no, no person is an island and when we're making complex decisions it can have all sorts of impacts on our relationships um, and and you know it, it can be very hard to make decisions and and uh, particularly if they are in conflict with other people and again at the moment it's we talked about the importance of, of being in the room, of focusing. It's so hard to do that, isn't it? We have so many things. Uh, you know, most of us see people half half attending, half looking at their phone. Um, and, and so the importance of really focusing is, is something I don't think we can overstress, is it? Absolutely. And, you know, if people are interested um, to please refer to some of the, the reading and the literature around active listening, um, as opposed to that sort of half attending that we often see because there are so many things that are competing for our attention at the moment. Or competitive conversation, which some of us engage in and, uh, and find ourselves quite expert at. I'm just, Lord, I'm really interested in the research on actually decision making. And we've talked about a number of angles of it, but is there something called a cognitive triangle that would help us as a, as a model to explain um, how thoughts, feelings, and behaviour interact, and could you could you help us on that, please? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, individual decisions um, are best understood as the interaction between reason, which is our thoughts, and emotion, which is our feelings, and those both influence how we react or how we behave towards the decisions that that we make. So. Um, 
how we think and reason about the decision we are making is is important because our thoughts around problems might be highly complex and involve factors like risk tolerance, motivation, personal ethics, beliefs, societal values and morals. And these factors influence our reasoning and our interaction with our feelings. And when we're posed with a reasoning dilemma, um, this can in turn make us feel really quite uncomfortable. And what we know is that our emotions or our feelings interact with our thoughts and our reasoning. They don't, they're not separate from, from each other at all. And how we feel about a decision will in turn influence how we then uh, behave and react um, onwardly. Um, and what we know is that high emotion places constraints on, on clear thinking and emotions can affect not just the nature of the decision, but the speed in which we make it. What we know as well is that, for example, anger might lead to an impatient and a rash decision making uh, process. And fear as, an, as a feeling or an emotion might cloud our ability to think clearly. And what we equally know is that how we react to decisions um, made in the past um, will influence how we react to them when we're faced with them again in the future. That's fascinating, Lorna. A really interesting ideas. And I, I think a lot of us think of ourselves as, as rational beings, but, but I've certainly read research that actually most of our decision-making is based on emotion and feeling. And then we kind of plaster over that with rationalizations afterwards is 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 that something that you think is is right yeah so um it, that's quite a complex uh concept that that you've raised peter um and yes a lot of um a lot of our decisions are based on uh, that starting point of um thoughts and feelings um certainly and what we know is that um there is this sort of uh, type one and type two uh, style of thinking. Um, and this was put together by um, a Nobel uh, Prize winner called Kahneman, who um, talked specifically around um, how we think. And he, he referred to it about thinking fast and thinking slow. Um, and I think I referred before to some of those snap decisions that we make. Um, and that's our type one thinking, the fast decision making. And that comes from a whole plethora of, of um, unconscious biases, of motivations, of um, previous experiences that we draw upon, thoughts about uh, decisions and feelings about decisions and, and how we um, uh, do that very, very quickly, very rapidly. And that process um, it's very much an evolutionary process. So we, we are designed to be able to make those quick decisions because sometimes we have to. They might not always be the right ones. And that's why when we're making very complex decisions, it's good to be able to take a step back or, or I describe it as the helicopter view. So rise above in your helicopter and imagine you're on your helicopter and you're looking down at the decisions that are laid in front of you so that you can take a whole view rather than being buried in, in all of those views so that you can make a type two decision, a, a slower decision, a more rational one. So um, one of the things, Lorna, that you've mentioned is emotion uh, that can cloud our, our clear thinking at times. 
we live in a busy, buzzing culture. A lot of us are on stress, sympathetic overdrive, and we've forgotten the importance of of inner calm. So perhaps as long as the audience, if anybody's listening, as long as you're not actually driving a car at the moment, let's just try and put ourselves in a brief place of calm by putting our feet flat on the floor and allowing our spines to be comfortable and taking three slow, regular, rhythmic breaths and just noticing how we feel. Because I've heard it said that from a point of calm from a point of inner stillness, maybe our decision-making is actually of better quality. I don't know, Lorna, what the evidence says on that. Thank you, Andrew. That's really helpful. It is certainly uh, connected to to better decision-making. What we know is that when our um, adrenaline systems are activated, Um, we can become highly stressed and uh, certainly our decision-making is very clouded um, because we are in a state of stress or distress and we are not able to to process uh, cognitively as well. So that begs the question, how do we bring about a culture in the workplace where we can find inner calm and inner stillness so that we can make good decisions, so that we don't run into the problems of climbing up the rungs of the ladder only to find that it's no longer up the right wall or spinning around in small circles uh, and stuck for, for making a right decision. What are the cultural changes that we can make in the workplace and in our homes? Well, there's lots of things that we can introduce. And I, I often talk about how we infuse well-being and uh, the spirit of uh, kindness and calmness and compassion with each other and infuse it within our workplace. So there may not be one single action, Andrew, that you particularly pinpoint and say, this is the thing that you need to do specifically. There might be a number of different things. And it's about um, having meetings that are slightly more mindful, for instance, that allow you to have uh, a five-minute check-in and a five-minute check-out that bookends your meetings so that you enable the participants to be able to stop, think, meet their basic needs. Are they hungry, angry, late, lonely, tired? And to just check in with people at the front end so that people can bring down those that surface-level adrenaline and they can think more clearly. There might be some things around how we communicate with each other and how we actively listen and we give each other space and a, and a pause um, pausing in conversation can be a very powerful thing so not necessarily jumping in and I think you mentioned the tendency for us to solve each other's problems um, but to just leave a pause actively listen and allow the other person to think their way through their own decisions that they're making not necessarily try to problem solve for them So there might be a number of things that you could begin to weave into the workplace that enable people to have a good space to be calm and reflective and to enable to have complex decision-making processes. Thank you very much for a really thought-provoking and informative uh, session. And I I hope people will take a lot of the, the lessons that you've left us with away and put them into practice. Um, I, I think the one decision I'm sure that we we've are right in making is to ask you back as a guest, and I hope we'll see you again in the future. Peter and Andrew, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always.
<laughs> Dr. Lorna Stewart, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.